It's hard to follow your sister often. <laughs> My story is nowhere near as exciting. I always wanted to be a doctor, and that was where I ended up. <laughs> I think we, sh- we can finish and proceed to the worship service now. <laughs> Again, it's a privilege to be here and to share with you. Thank you for inviting us from Australia. It's a long way away. There are a few Australians here in the crowd today, and I'm glad to say that we too are excited about what Amen is doing. I just invite you to say a quick word of prayer, even as, we, even as I share my story this morning. Father, thank you again for this time. May you hide me behind your cross. The things I'm about to share are not for my own glory, but for yours. May I speak to someone here that you have brought today. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember my first day, actually it was my first night. Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Now, for all of you who are doctors, especially those who are adult doctors, you never want to see a baby again in your life. (laughs) For me, it's the opposite. I'm doing pediatrics, and so I like to see babies. Actually, I like to see babies that are well. You know, the ones that in the audience that are crying on the plane. On a plane, if there's a baby next to me, I can sleep no matter how loud it's crying. When people are walking up and down and scratching and tearing their hair out, I can go to sleep. Because when a baby cries, I know that they are well. When a baby doesn't cry, I wake up when everyone else is sleeping. Because I know that something is wrong. I remember earlier in 2014, it was my first night, my first ever shift, looking after these neonatal intensive care unit babies. They give you a pager that you carry around, and I think one of our brothers was sharing yesterday about his experience. Today, I'm going to share mine. I had this pager, and I was hoping it wouldn't go off. And you know, when you are on overnight, the pager always goes off when you are just about to fall asleep. 3 a.m. or maybe 4 a.m. in the morning when it's getting colder, the air conditioning gets colder at 4 a.m. in the morning. It's, you're so drowsy, you don't know whether it's midnight or, or Monday or Tuesday, and the pager goes off. Please come to room 8. And so I went to room 8, and when you go into the neonatal t- intensive care unit, they prepare you by practicing on mannequins. You know those plastic mannequins? But practicing on a plastic baby is nothing like practicing on a real baby. I mean, doing the real thing, not practicing. (laughs) And so I remember I walked into the room in room eight, and the midwife just threw me the baby and ran away. (laughs) And I was like, what's going on? And so I soon began to realize that this baby was blue, was not breathing, maybe about four kilos, and nothing that you practice beforehand on those plastic mannequins prepares you anything like your first neonatal resuscitation. If you're not a pediatrician or pediatric resident or trainee in the room, you never want to see the situation, ever. If you're a parent in the room, you never want to see the situation, ever. But if you are a pediatric resident or a trainee or an attending, You are the one who does not want to see the situation because you have to fix the situation. (laughs) 
And so here I was, the mum, just after 24 hours of labor, exhausted on the bed. The dad standing in the corner, not knowing what to do. Cry, be happy, to be sad, not quite knowing what was going on. The obstetrician trying to get as far away from the baby as possible. The midwife who had just given me the baby and run to the other side of the room and me. And it's in that situation that your faith begins to kick in. And so I remember I put the baby, what seemed like hours, I put the baby on the resuscitator and started doing the things. You know, you go through this algorithm, they try and prepare you, but nothing prepares you like doing the real thing for the first time in that situation. Baby's not breathing. Heart rate's under, under 100. Okay, we've got to start doing something. Just call for help, press the button, call someone. Someone help me. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. No one is coming. So I intubated the baby. The baby had meconium aspiration syndrome. It had swallowed its own poo on the way coming out and could not breathe. One and a half minutes, heart rate less than 60. Let's start CPR. You know, I always wondered to myself in that situation, that was the first time I resuscitated a baby, and in the blinding flash, I began to pray. I stopped. I remember in the middle of the resuscitation, I stopped, and I just closed my eyes, and I prayed, and then I continued. And it was in that split second that I asked myself, when you say you have faith in God to save this baby, does it mean you just stand there and hope that God saves it? Or does it mean that you do something about it? Six months later, the local newspaper featured the baby that I'd saved that night. I will never forget that experience because it was a turning point in my training as a doctor. This morning, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 19. I've titled my sermon or my sharing this morning of opiates and stimulants. Now, I'm not an anesthetist or someone who does anesthetics. I have no experience in prescribing opiates. You should have come to the seminar yesterday by Dr. Kim. But I want to share with you what I mean when I put this statement out there. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, the Bible says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelve. This is the story of Elijah going to Elisha to anoint him. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. I want you to notice some very basic key points here. I'm not going to labor the point. This is not supposed to be a sermon. But I want you to notice that Elisha is an extremely rich man, or at least his father is extremely rich. How many oxen does it take to plow a piece of land? Maybe one oxen sometimes. If you're rich, maybe you have two, so you put a yoke across. This man has 12 yoke of oxen plowing the field, and he was with the twelve. Elisha is a rich person. When you are rich and you have a farm in Palm Springs, you don't go out into the sun. When you are eating breakfast in the sun, I wanted to die, it was so hot. 
let alone standing in the field, this man, Elisha, could have easily told or hired a servant to do the plowing for him, right? And sat in the shade with maybe some air conditioning and looked out over the field and admired his farm, but instead he was out there working the field with the oxen. And that is exactly where Elijah found him. Many of us, doctors, dentists, medical students, dental students, are like Elisha. We come from relatively okay families. We make a relatively good salary. We have some comforts. We can afford a car. We can afford a house. We are able to live comfortably. But I want to challenge you to go beyond that. As doctors, we have the ability to work on Sabbath if we want to. Now, I'm not trying to say you should work on Sabbath. Don't get me wrong. But you can justify to the rest of your church members that you're on call and you can hide behind your Sabbath work. As dentists, you can lead a comfortable life and go on a mission trip whenever you want. If you're in private practice so long, you find someone to cover you. We can say, I'm too busy, I'm too, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm swamped with my study. I don't have time to study the Bible. We are a privileged bunch of people. Don't you agree? We can use every excuse under the sun because we are helping people. And like Elijah, rather I should say Elisha, we have the option to sit in the shade or the option to plow the field. My sister shared a little bit about our experience. My family became Adventists when I was about two and a half, three. We grew up in Singapore. And it was because of my illness that my parents brought me to an Adventist hospital where a missionary doctor and his wife introduced the health message to my parents. We became vegetarian almost overnight. And because my illness started to improve, it provided an opening for them to share with my family about the Seventh-day Adventist message. So if anyone tells you that the health message doesn't work, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And I would not be standing here if someone did not share with my family not only about healthy living, but about the potential for spiritual Because of my parents' conversion, they felt a great burden to share and to be involved in ministry. And so that was the way my sister and I grew up. We moved to Australia when I was nine years old, and my parents soon began to be involved in the public campus ministry work, working to reach university students on secular campuses. They planted a church together with some other elders in our church, a church plant in the middle of Melbourne, Australia, which is now known as Gateway Adventist Center. At the age of 12 and 13, my sister and I were dragged along, or rather just put in the car and brought along, and involved in every facet of ministry possible because my parents were involved. And so that's the way we grew up. And when you're in high school and when you are going through, you have time. You have time to go to school, you have time to go and do ministry, you have time to help out at church, you can do this, that, and everything else. 
And so that's the way we grew up. We didn't know anything else but to be involved in ministry. Maybe some of you sitting here in the audience today, you think back to those days before medical school, before your busy life as an attending, before your busy life as a running your own practice, and you had all the time in the world. You know, when, in, when I was in high school, I used to finish class at 3.30 in the afternoon. And I thought that finishing at 3.30 was late. Then when you went to university, you finished class sometimes at 5 or 5.30, and I thought that was late. Then when you start medical residency, you finish work at 8 o'clock, and you thought that was late. Now as a fellow, if I finish work before midnight, sometimes I'm happy. <laughs> and so when I was younger, I remember there was time to do ministry. There was time to do this. There was time to do that. But as time went along, and some of you who are just starting medical school or just starting your residency, you're starting to realize that you may not have had or may not have as much time as you used to or want to or wish you had. And so it's at that situation, all the privileges of Elisha before, the richness, the wealth, the affluence, the choices, when Elijah comes and says to him, leave your work and follow me, you're left at this juncture where you have to make a decision. Much like the juncture where I had to make a decision when I was looking after this young baby. These are some of the pictures of our campus ministry that we were involved in. I remember I began to give Bible study to people older than me with a Bible study partner when I had time before medical school started. There is a quote that goes like this from Review and Herald. January 24, 1893. Faith is not an opiate, but a stimulant. Looking to Calvary will not quiet your soul into non-performance of duty, but will create faith that will You know, when you come to this situation, sometimes when you are faced with a conflict, sometimes when you're faced with the disruptive nature of medical or dental school, sometimes when you're faced with the busyness of your residency life, or maybe you've just finished your training and you're about to go into practice, you're faced with this dilemma where your faith becomes either an opiate or a stimulant. Your faith becomes sitting there and says, God, I just want you to take over, or God, there is something I need to do. The reason I bring this quote up is that I think we are at a precipice in the 11th hour as the organizers of the conference have described. You may not know, but four out of every 10 Adventists who are ever baptized in our church leave. So I want you to imagine that for a minute. If you're sitting in this big, large room, and there's a line that goes down the middle here, half of this room, almost half, will not be here at some stage in the future. And I'm particularly worried because there are many young people sitting in this audience today, and if you look at the comparison slide that I'm about to show you, 63% of them are young adults. And I want you to realize that in that bar graph there, for those of you who like statistics and pictures, that there will be some young doctors, some young dentists, some young medical students, some young dental students in that group 
whether you like it or not. And the challenge that we face, the challenge that I faced when I started medical school and I started my training is the very question that I'm going to put to you today. When you are not quite there yet and you're in comfort like Elisha, you have a choice. But when you are there, your faith is either an opiate or your faith is a stimulant. I want to add to this further by telling you and sharing with you two startling statistics when I looked at these graphs that I found. When they surveyed this group of people who left the church, who no longer worship, whose faith is no longer something that is of prime importance to them, almost a third said that they left for no real distinctive reason. So what I'm trying to highlight to you here is that young students, young doctors, young dentists leave for no real reason. It's because their faith has become like an opiate. You know when you have morphine, when you give your patients morphine, they they become comfortable, they become drowsy. It's like that same experience. Perhaps another way of reflecting the same idea is when you look at this graph. I took this because I'm speaking here in America today, and this is relevant to the NAD. Now, I want to put a disclaimer here. I'm not trying to point out, I know the graph says this is not my own graph. I've taken it from the Adventist uh, Statistics Department. I'm not trying to point out whether Adventist colleges are good or not here. That's not my focus of my discussion today. The focus of my discussion today is that this describes a trend that worries me. Because it describes a trend that people are not making active decisions and because they are passive, because their faith is like an opiate, therefore they slowly start to slip. And if we are not careful, and if I am not careful, as a medical student, as a dental student, as a doctor, as a dentist, I will fall into that same trap even if you don't think you will. When 40% of our Adventist young people think that the Adventist church is the remnant church. Something is going on. And so here was I faced with this particular conflict in my own experience. I started medical school in 2006. Well, that's a long time ago, I just realized. I always wanted to be a doctor much like my sister, because of the impact that the missionary doctors had on my family. And like her, she said I stole her, her dream, which I kind of did, I guess. I wanted to do pediatrics. Because when you do pediatrics, you reach a family unit. I can tell an adult person to quit smoking in a health clinic and they will never listen to me. I can pray and encourage them and help them through the process, but the success rate is not as high as if I tell a parent to quit smoking because the kid's respiratory illness will get worse and they will quit tomorrow. You know, I have come across families who come into my, the clinic that I sit in and tell me that next time they come back, I kick grandma and grandpa out of the house because they smoke. 
Okay, I didn't ask you to do that. I just asked you to not smoke. <laughs> but you get what I'm talking about. This is how pediatrics work. You influence the parents, and the family changes. And so I began to do medical school, and I know much, many of you are going through that same experience. High school was okay, you step into medical school, and then there's this overwhelming craziness. Lecture after lecture after lecture, exam after exam, test after test, pressure and more pressure and more pressure. You know, I used to joke when I was doing public campus ministries through my university life that every other course, you can learn a subject content, a textbook, lectures, and then as soon as you sit the exam, you can throw it out. But when you're studying medicine and maybe dentistry and other things, you can't just throw it out, right? No, I wish I could throw some of it out, but I can't. Because you can't go to a doctor and say, oh, I learned that in first year medical school, but then I forgot it because it's no longer important. Even our amen president still remembers the Krebs cycle today. And so you're faced with this dilemma where you're going through this experience much like Elisha. And I want you to go back to the story, 1 Kings chapter 20. Notice what happens next, verse 20. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh, used the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people. And they ate. then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. When Elijah comes to Elisha and asks him this question, he says, hey, leave your work, come and follow me and do God's work. Elisha thinks about it, is counting the cost here, but decides, okay, I'm going to go, kills the oxen, boils their flesh, gives them to people to eat, follows Elisha, and keeps going after. And so as I started medical school, this same question came to me. Daryl, are you going to be one or a person where your faith is an opiate or your faith is a stimulant? Are you just going to sit in medical school and let it all wash over you and just get caught in the rat race of life and exams and boards and training and fellowship and getting into the best residency program and then doing some research to get a PhD to progress your career so that you can get a job in Mayo or Harvard or Loma Linda or anywhere, wherever you want to go? Or are you going to be intentional about what you want to do with your career and how you want to serve Are you just going to sit there and allow the system to absorb you and to take you into this factory where you go in an Adventist young person and you come out someone whose faith is shaken? I'm not having a go at any particular institution here. I'm talking about the concept. You understand what I'm saying? And so thus began my journey. I finished medical school in 2010. And in Australia, we apply, we do, everyone does an adult internship. We do one year of adult medicine, even if you want to do pediatrics, to get some basic medical knowledge and surgical knowledge and emergency knowledge, etc. And then you apply for your residency program, much like you guys do here. 
And so I remember because I wanted to do pediatrics, you apply. And you know what the process is. You talk to people, you get the recommendation letter, you try and figure out which program will suit you better. And you do all these things that everyone does and you have to go through this process and everyone acts like they're trying to be nice and to get this. But all you really want someone to do is to give you the answer and give you a place in their program. And so I began to apply, and I applied to the pediatric residency or training program, as we call it, in, in Victoria, the same state where I did my medical school and did my internship. The training program in my state is one of the most prestigious, arguably the, the prestigious pediatric training program in Australia and New Zealand. My hospital likes to consider itself outside of the United States in the top three pediatric hospitals around the world. And so this process of interviewing and going through the match and going through this cycle and getting your letter and you're preparing for the interview and the statements is a rigorous process that stresses a lot of people out. And so I remember I applied for the process, put in the application, and you get three or 350 people who apply every year, and they interview 50. They take about 35, 36. So I got an interview, by God's grace. And I went along to the interview. Did my thing, answered the standard questions. You know what the questions are like. Why do you want to do pediatrics? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Share with me an example of your leadership. You memorize all the answers to the interview and you pray and you hope that God opens the door, opens the door to what you want to do. And you go in there and you pray that God gives you the residency program that you want at the top of your list. And so two weeks after, the results came out, and I got a phone call from the HR manager from the hospital. So thank you, Daryl, for applying. Unfortunately, you have missed out on a place in pediatrics. One thing about doctors, if you're not a doctor in the room, that you may like to know is doctors do not like to fail. <laughs> doctors do not like to make mistakes. And when you fail and when something doesn't go according to the way you planned it to be, your plans, you get thrown. Do you agree, those of you who are doctors in the room? And so this was not in the plan. The plan was always that God had given me an opportunity to study medicine so that I could spread his gospel. And now here was the counting the cost situation, much like Elisha faced. And the question was, what are you going to do about this situation? You didn't get into what you thought you needed to, or you should have, or what you thought God was leading you to get into. What are you going to do? After much soul-searching and praying, God started to speak to my heart. That it's not about pediatrics, it's not about medicine, but it's about where and what your priority is. That I needed to decide whether pursuing a career in pediatrics was more or less important than what I had gone in to medical school hoping to do. When you're going through medical school, 
or dental school or training, it's very easy to lose sight of the vision, of the ideals, of the dreams that you had when you went in, and then when you get hit by these biochemistry lectures and these anatomy quizzes and these uh, endless assignments and rotations and night shifts, they grind you down to a pulp. And so I asked myself the question, what was I going to put first? And God convicted me that pediatrics was not it. But instead, it would be ministry. During that time, I had the opportunity to be involved in a youth movement called AYC in Australia. My sister and I, along with other people and other young people, one of whom is sitting with us today in the audience, began to share and to collaborate to unite young people around Australia for a bigger mission. In the same year that I didn't get into my pediatric residency training program, I had the opportunity to start, by God's grace, a three-year cycle. A three-year cycle that would culminate in young people going back to their local churches and running youth-led, youth-driven evangelistic efforts that would revitalize and strengthen their local church. We believe that young people should not just come to a conference, but that they should go back and serve on a daily and weekly basis. And so we designed a project called Impact 2014. Impact 2014 was this concept where they would do exactly what I just explained. And since 2014, when we continued to work with these groups, we found that out of all the attendees to our conference in this three-year cycle, we had one conference, 35% are still active in their local church. Just on a little bit of a tangent, just before I came, got off the phone to one of my friends. One of these sites in Adelaide in South Australia has just started a new public campus ministry. They started with eight young people on a secular university campus. And what I want you to imagine, and to give you some context, in Australia, there is one Adventist university, but it doesn't offer any medical or dental school training. So the majority of Adventist young people, I would say, and people in Australia, go to secular university campuses. We don't have a choice. If I want to be a doctor in Australia, I can't go to Avondale. And so when you are faced with this situation, you have this context. On top of that, 20% of Australia's economy is supplied or is funded by overseas education. Students from Asia, Africa, South America come to Australia to study. And so we have this tremendous impact and this opportunity to reach them. And throughout my early medical training, I had the opportunity to be involved in this process. And just before I came, I heard that they started the campus ministry. They had eight people, and now they have 40 people, and they can't fit them into the lecture theater, 70% of whom are non-Adventist students. At the same time, God began to convict me. Out of that failure that I didn't get into pediatrics, besides this AYC program, he began to put on my heart what I'd always dreamed of doing, to study public health. 
You see, in the study of public health, for those of you who are public health clinicians in the room, you know that public health allows you to reach populations or to design things that will aid populations and to look at things that are a little bit more holistic, preventative health and other interesting things that you may want to study about. And my prayer at the time was, God, even though I didn't get into pediatrics, and if you're convicting me to go and do public health, I want to do it, and everything that I do in this area will only be used for your gospel. And I began to feel the conviction towards to apply to a particular university. Not because any other university is less capable, but because where I come from in the context that I serve in, the context that I share in, people often respect, for some reason, a piece of paper that comes with a seal on it. And they are willing to listen. It's not so much that that seal of paper or that piece of paper carries any weight, but simply it opens their mind to listen to what you have to say. So I began to pray, and God led me to apply to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, arguably the most prestigious public health school in the world. Again, the same process. You know, i just gone through one experience and God was like, do it again. Okay, fine. Ask three people for the recommendation letter. Write a personal statement. Apply. Follow the instructions. Look at the criteria. And I'm the sort of person who plans my life methodically. One-year plan, three-year plan, five-year plan. You know, that sort of thing. And so I began to put this package together and I prayed and I felt that God was leading and I put everything in two months early before the closing date. Submitted, done. I got an email one Friday afternoon before my way, on my way to care group, my uh, evangelistic small group ministry at our church. Checked my email before sunset. I got an email saying in the header, you know when you use the email programs, they give you a snapshot of what the email is about, the preview. They don't tell you the full email. It goes like the sender and then a little bit of the thing. Johns Hopkins University, thank you very much. Now, if any of you have applied for a job before, you know when you open up a piece of paper or a letter or an email that says thank you very much, it's always bad news. They don't thank you if they want to hire you. They only thank you if they're going to not hire you or not accept or offer you any situation. And so I said, okay, let's read the email. Thank you very much for applying. Unfortunately, you have not been selected. So this is terrible. It's like two out of two fail. I'm like, God, you, 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 were, you, were, uh, you were convicting me that I should apply to this particular place for these reasons so that I could share your gospel. It's not even for my own benefit. It's so that I can do your work. And this, I'm trying to prioritize you, and this is the result that you give me? To make things worse, when I looked at the selection criteria by chance a few weeks later, I realized that at some stage, the selection criteria had modified so that my application package was no longer as attractive because I didn't know it changed. I was like, that's even more unfair. <laughs> you changed your criteria? Really? So I was so disappointed. And it was through that time that I began to pray and to pray and to pray again, and God kept reassuring me, is your faith an opium? Or is your faith a stimulant? God convicted me again to reapply. So I'm like, okay, here goes. Read it, the thing, follow the instruction criteria, the new and modified instruction criteria. 
got the same letters, done the person's name, I submitted it earlier. And I checked every week to make sure they didn't change their criteria, right? So if they change the criteria again, I can adapt my application package before the closing date. Two weeks before the closing date, I got an email. Friday afternoon before going to I should stop checking my emails on Friday afternoon. <laughs> Johns Hopkins University. Thank you very much. Ah, this is it, man. Like, three out of three. Thank you very much. We are pleased to accept and offer you a position. I, su- I, I later realized when I went to the university that they accept maybe 3% of applicants who apply for this type of program. First day of orientation, cold Maryland winter. Sitting in there in my coat, I got into class, I sat down. You know you, when you sit down in a classroom, you introduce yourself to your colleagues, your classmates. I saw I, I shook the hand of the person in front of me, said, hi, my name is Daryl, I'm from Australia. Uh, who are you? And, oh, my name is such and such. Uh, I'm here at Johns Hopkins. I've been sponsored by the government. I'm a U.S. Uh, Navy medical officer. I look after 2,000 soldiers, their family and men on one of these commander ships somewhere. Blah, blah. I was like, okay, okay, hi, nice to meet you. Okay, let's try the person on my right. Hi, my name is Daryl. I'm from Australia. I'm a pediatric resident. I mean, not, not even a pediatric, just like, you know, just a resident. Hi, my name is such and such. I've been sponsored for my government from Saudi Arabia. My dream is to become the first female health minister of my country. Okay, all right. Let's try the person on my left. Hi, my name is Daryl. Hi, my name is such and such. I'm uh, the leading researcher at the NIH in respiratory illness. Okay, okay, enough, enough, enough. Can't do it. Hi, my name is Daryl. I'm from Australia, full stop. And so I wondered to myself, why did God put me in this situation, allow me to go through this process, apply, fail, apply again, get in, and now when I get in there, I look like an inferior, young, crazy nut amongst all these accomplished, well-established, prestigious people in this room. Is God trying to make a fool of me? Again, he reminded me, faith is not an opiate but a stimulant. I put you here for a reason. You said you wanted to do public health to spread the gospel, and so this is where you're going to do it. So every time someone asks me about Johns Hopkins and my study in my public health area, I would say, this is why. God is putting me here. I graduated at the top of my class, and every time I ask, or someone asks me how I did and how my experience was, by God's grace and for his reason. My time is short, so I'm only going to share a couple more stories. I eventually got into the pediatric residency program. And last year, in the middle of our program, we do our board exams in the middle. I know you guys do it at the end or some, some other. We, we Australians are fancy. We like to do it in the middle. We study for a year and a half of this exam. You know, a year and a half. Our residency hours are not as long, I must agree, but when you're studying for this exam, it consumes your life. Monday to Friday, you work, and after hours, you know, you go you do like a 7 to 5 or 8 to 5 shift. We have lectures from 6.30 to 8.30, and after 8.30, we start practicing. It's a clinical exam, real patients. Monday, Tuesday, lectures, two hours. Thursday, study group. And so I began to look at my calendar, you know, my, my planning, Two days of lectures a week, one day of study group, that's three days. 
I have one day for care group on Sabbath after uh, Friday afternoon that I'm not going to study. So that leaves one day a week, which I have a care group prayer meeting and a personal Bible study that I want to give to a non-Adventist. So that's no more weeknights. And then I'm not working on Sabbath or go to church on Sabbath. And that, that leaves Sunday. And study, uh, Sunday I'm going to study. And so this was my life for one and a half years. Everyone goes through this process. The only thing, the, the only problem was that because of this tax schedule, they would schedule practice clinical exam cases on Sabbath. 8 to 12 every Saturday morning for free. The attendings would come, do a practice case on a real patient, walk you through, give you clinical tips, and it was pro bono because they wanted everyone to pass. So when I heard about it, I decided to speak to my director of training. I said, sir, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And unfortunately, I won't be able to attend these sessions. But I still want to do well. So is there any possibility I could move the session to Sunday? You know, everyone can attend. He said, I'll check for you. It's okay, let me check. So he went back and checked and came and called me back into his office and said, I'm sorry, because the hospital gives them some allowance to be on call on Saturday, it has to be Saturday morning. So you will have to miss out. See, God, God has a sense of humor, right? Didn't get in the first time, didn't get in the second time. And now, the dream of doing pediatrics to spread the gospel, to share the health message is in jeopardy because I can't pass this exam. And so I began to pray about it. God convicted me to put ministry first again. There's a quote that I want to share with you. It's a little bit further along. I hope I can find it. It goes something like this. Engage in personal effort to bring souls to Jesus and the knowledge of the truth. In such labor, you will find both a stimulant and a tonic. It will arouse and strengthen. By exercise, your spiritual powers will become more vigorous so that you can, with better success, work out your own salvation. Not work for your salvation. Work out your own salvation. Faith is not an opiate, but a stimulant. And so God was convicting me, Daryl, you have to make a decision. All the while I've led you through this process, you have to make a decision now, whether you want to be excellent in your profession at the expense of your ministry. There's no two ways about it. You make a decision. And so I told my professor, my director of training, I said, I'm sorry, I can't attend the sessions. I'll choose not to. In the formation of my study group, I told my study group members beforehand, I said, I'm happy to be in the study group. I would love to be in the study group, but I have one caveat. We cannot meet on Friday night or on Saturday at all. If we do, I'm sorry. I will not jeopardize your chances of passing the exam. I will study on my own. Director of training called me back and he told me, hey, Daryl, it's okay. I've done some checking for you. Because of what you've done and your conduct and the way you've conducted yourself, there are many pediatric professors who will be willing to take you privately to do cases outside of Sabbath hours. Because of who you are and what you've done for your faith and the things that you've done beforehand, we feel that you are a valid and valuable contribution to our program. So therefore, just ask any of them. I'm sure they'll help you. I will do it for you. 
And I began to think to myself, this is what it's about. That faith is not just an opiate, but a stimulant. As I began to prepare for my exam, it got tougher and tougher with ministry. Working night shift, working late shifts, getting to church. I was so tired. I was going through this you know, process after sunset. You know, you, you know when you're studying for exams, that's the only time you hope the sun never sets, right? Because if the Sabbath lasts longer, you don't have to go back to your study. And so I remember that. I was like, oh, no, sunset. Okay, here we go again. Study and study and study and go through the process. And I began to grapple again. God started to speak to me. Daryl, you promised me you made a commitment that at the start of your exam study process, you would not only stand for me, but ministry would be a priority in your life. And I felt it getting harder and harder as the time squeeze got tighter and tighter. And then God gave me an interesting experience. I was sitting at lunch one day in the midst of all this preparation. One of my colleagues came up to me and said, Hey, Daryl, how are you not stressed about this exam period? You don't even go to the Saturday morning thing. You know, you're always at your church and doing whatever you're doing. How are you not stressed? And inside I was like, man, if only you knew how stressed I was. (laughs) And I said, you know, I need to take a break, so that's why I have a rest between Friday and Saturday. One of my other colleagues, sitting having lunch in the lunchroom, began to ask me about Sabbath. And so there I was, sharing about Sabbath in the middle of the busiest exam preparation period of my life. Because I made a stand not to go to the clinical preparation class. The person that my sister was sharing about that she gave Bible study to was my colleague. I spent 10 years of my medical school and my residency training inviting my classmates and my colleagues and my professors to come to church, to come to evangelistic meetings, to come to care group. At least 45 or 50 of my classmates, colleagues have come, but not one of them have stayed. That was the first one. In the middle of the busiest time period, in the middle of the craziness, in the middle middle of this whole process, the same thing came back. Is your faith going to be an opiate or is your faith going to be a stimulant? By God's grace, I passed the exam. Never never want to do it ever again in my life. But it taught me one lesson. Elisha was a faithful and excellent farmer. But he was also a faithful and excellent prophet. Success in the medical profession does not have to come at the expense of ministry. You can, by God's grace, be an excellent doctor and an excellent minister of the gospel. It's not just about reaching your patients. It's not just reaching your colleagues, your classmates, your professors. It's to work out your own salvation.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.